I'm Andy Scarantino, and this is View from the Roof, formerly known as the Get the Fuck Off Podcast. Every week, I'm going to be bringing you bits of goodness to not only help you get the fuck off the shit that doesn't serve you anymore, but also to get you to think deeper and wake up to the world around you. My mission over the last three years has been to make personal development digestible for those who are ready, but they maybe don't want to speak in a soft, whispery voice or sit in the lotus. Through sharing story and interviewing cool people who are important to me, I hope you'll be able to see the world in a new way. You don't have to sacrifice your outstanding personality, and all of this is quite the journey. I'm really excited to have you on that journey with me. Welcome to my View from the Roof. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of View from the Roof, formerly the Get the Fuck Off podcast. I am here today with somebody that I admire quite a bit. And actually, a conversation like we're about to have is one of the reasons that I changed the name from the Get the Fuck Off podcast to View from the Roof, because I wanted to go deeper. I wanted to go deeper than just just the smaller things that, you know, not that they're small things, not that getting away from your drinking or your smoking or things are small, but there's so much more to it. There's so much more to your experience than just those things that that appear on the surface. So today my guest is Zen Benefiel. Um, Zen, the biography that you sent me doesn't do you justice in any way. So I would love to give you the opportunity to introduce yourself. And then I hope that um, we will have a free-flowing conversation. I just want to put one more thing in there, and that is that Zen is very good at tying a lot of big concepts together and making them understandable, making them digestible, and uh, I'm really looking forward to what he has to say today. So Zen, please introduce yourself. Oh my gosh. Uh, Hi, I'm Zendor, and yes, you have been expecting me. I'll be your guide as we peer into the depths of what keeps us afraid, angry, ignorant, and immobile. How did I know that was coming? I don't know. You know, it was like, what do I do? You know, because as you mentioned, my biography, even when I I, just, how do you encapsulate a lifetime that began as an orphan, became adopted, went through a spiritual awakening, had contact experiences, as well as having a couple of master's degrees in business, and a really great professional background of multiple industries and successes. So in that, you know, framing of the major concepts and making them simple and things like that, I guess that's part of really why I've been able to do that, because I've been able to reflect on what I think I've learned and test it in the outer world with others to see if those tasty tidbits of transcendence actually have worked or do work. And most often, you know, it's not the the major ahas that you get. It's the personal, hmm, to shift how we think, how we behave, what we do, and opening up the love that, and I know that's a big word, opening up the love that we have for self and others that's intrinsic to our nature. We tend to cover all of it up with a bunch of crap because we're angry because we're not 
being loved, first of all, which inhibits our ability to love. So how do you get rid of all that, right? Well, that's partially what we're going to be talking about today because you got to open yourself up and be willing to step into the unknown because there's no danger there. There really isn't. The only danger is to yourself and not doing so and being willing to open that door up because fearlessness is the most pure form of faith, love, and trust that you can have. And, and there I, is infinite intelligence by whatever name, right? We don't need to know names. It's out there, in as you're talking about the, the greater complexity of systems and planning and, and planets as well, there's no names or titles. It's just frequency. Right. I love that you mentioned love. It's such a beautiful word. It's And you said it's a big word. And I know that I understand why you would have said that because it is a big word for a lot of us. And for some of us, it's just what we experience. And I would just give like a background to everybody that might be listening and that one of the first things that I felt around Zen was love. And it was not a... Um, like a, a love that was like we think romantic love or even platonic love or even, you know, personal love. It was just love. And it was just this love that existed between the syllables in the space. And we met through BizCatalyst 360, which is an online media digest. And we both are writers and we attend something called the Friendship Bench on Thursdays. And it's a, just a wonderful space of connection. And when I met Zen, after we met you, I'm speaking to Zen now. Zen sent me the uh, uh, his interview with Jeffrey Mishlove. And at the time, that was pretty far out for me. And I kind of looked at that and I said, you know, this human is so authentic and so here and so present. And I'm feeling this energy. And I know that whatever this is, is something that I'm supposed to be listening to at this moment. So I listened to not only that one, but the other one that was on his page. And I was like, I think that there are some missing links here. And I think that this is like, there is something that's greater that's connecting. And as you know, a lot of my listeners know, and you know, Zen, I don't have a script that I go by in terms of what spirituality means. But I do seem to find a theme in that everything that we want to do in the world, everything that we're called to do is, is related to this larger, greater. And, and, I, and it is love. It is it love. Is. And it, it is. And, and because of that, I often feel like the missing link. Right? Because I see what effect I have in just doing my best to be present, open, uh, vulnerable, safe, and in supportive of others that are wanting to achieve things. And it, you know, that spans the gamut. Uh, speaking of missing link, though, here's another one for you that I was contemplating one day. And we have a missing link in our human development, right? There's this period that we call the missing link right, that we're searching for. Well, gosh, doesn't it make sense in looking at the overall development of the 
um, human being, as well as all the other animals on the planet, that we adapt, we mutate, we grow to accommodate change, right? So doesn't it make sense that when we had small bodies, small craniums, that at some point, this brain matter that we had couldn't go any further in the size that it was. So that in order to incorporate a greater consciousness, we needed more brain matter to do so. So over the next millennia, probably because it took a while, we adapted. We changed our form to accommodate a larger brain. And then we began that process of integrating and, and working with the tools that we had and gradually coming up to where we are now, where we're still relatively the same size. However, there's aspects of our brain that we haven't fully learned about yet, which are connected to that infinite intelligence and feeds us, nourishes us, if you will, from what we bring in in our sensory capacity of our environments and then the distilling of that with curiosity and inquiry as to, okay, what else are we capable of? And we have a history starting with the Vedas 15,000 years ago that basically state that we are each a divine thread incarnate of a unity consciousness that we're all connected to and have the capacity of being God incarnate. Now that's a big gulp and probably most people will choke. It's big, that. but we can make it small. Let's make it small. <laughs> like, cause it's that's so the whole notion of, of being able to put all of the things together and have it make sense and then be able to make sense common so that we can all rise to that level of love that we're capable of living in that we've been denying for millennia. I think a problem is this idea that we're here to compete, that we're here to chase and achieve, mm. that we're here to continue to, I mean, for lack of a better yeah, be we need more stuff. Be takers. Right? We need more stuff. We need more stuff. <laughs> we got to have more stuff. Um, and, you know, that is a, a an old paradigm, right, that had been instituted. And, and granted, you know, we can only do as much as we know how to do and expecting behaviors that we aren't aware of to come forth. That's kind of mm, diminishing the possibility, right? Because mm -hmm. we have expectations at that point. I, I, a couple of things that rang in my mind as you were talking about that. The first was that in referencing that, my oldest daughter, um, we were divorced when she was nine and in high school, my mother, who they'd moved back to the town I was from, said to me one day, you know, she just ought to know better. Some kind of behavior, I forget what it was. And I said, well, mom, who taught her? Where could she have learned? that behavior that you're expecting from her because she's had no mentors in her life that could give that kind of information to her because her mother certainly wasn't. And 
<laughs> at that moment, mom says, oh, I never thought about that. Right? So we often expect things from others without, you know, and thinking that they should know things. Why not just, hey, ask them, you know, did you think about this? How about that? You know, when you said this, I felt that. And it made me think this. What do you think? Right. So there's this open communication that hopefully is less triggered in the process because there is that moment. Oh, I got to look at myself. Mm -hmm. Right. Can I look at myself and be honest about what's going on inside of me? Or do I want to project to you what I think you want to hear in order to feel like I belong? Right. That's a huge challenge that we have. And what we do anywhere, we do everywhere. So if that pattern exists, you're going to see it reflected throughout your life. Well, what do you do about that? Well, you go back to that. Okay, who am I? What am I here to do? You know, is this an aspect of love or is it an aspect of fear that I'm responding? And there, there's those two paths. Well, what are each like? And, you know, that can take a lifetime to figure out as well. It can. I think that when you talk about sense, that is, that's really a big part of it. And I don't want us to skip over your early life experiences because you do have a gift in that you understood early what you were here to do. I think a lot of us, um, you know, don't get that in the capacity that you did, but we do get feelings. We oh, do sure. get, you know, and, and we do have that ability and you know, when you're talking about like people being able to look at themselves and see if they and and be able to really see themselves as, okay, like, well, what am I, what part am I playing in this? What part am I, what am I? And like, where am I in this larger, greater? Um, I think a lot of us think that we're separate entities and you had experiences early where you realized that that wasn't the case. And right. I, I would love it if you could share um, to whatever whatever you're willing to share about that, and and we can talk more about that oneness and and about all of that that that. Um... Well, how it started was a complete lack of feeling oneness. I was orphaned at birth, and I was adopted at six weeks. So there was a six week period that we don't really think about, right? Until we get later in life, if we start doing self-examination of what our younger life was like. And here's a, a, you know, an infant that doesn't know anything that all of a sudden has this lack of connection. And then when my parents adopted me, there were, it felt connected. I was absolutely loved, honored, adored, given space space, encouraged to explore, be curious, you know, and that eventually kind of <laughs> gave some things that, that uh, are, allowed some opportunities to occur that they weren't really happy with. However, um, at four and a half, they decided to adopt another. And it was a little girl and my sister. And they brought her home, no preparation. I can't remember if they told me because I don't have a whole lot of memories beyond a certain point in my early life. But they brought her home and they thought it was time to tell me about my adoption. And I understood, you know, as they were saying, you know, that we love you, we adore you, and, and we wanted to give you, you know, all of those kinds of things. I got all that. And of course, 
as a, a even as a four and a half year old is like okay the the standard questions come up why who are my biologicals you know what are they about and then i had another curious question because i'd had a little bit of church exposure the question was do i have a father and mother in heaven and can i talk to them because jesus said you got to direct connect so i'm like okay let's try it out and see if it works it did a few months later i'm standing on the landing of our home we had a two-story uh, large apartment my great aunt had the an apartment to the uh, one side of the house but so we lived there and dad had a, a house built so in the process of it i'm standing on the the landing looking out over the front porch with my elbows in the windowsill and my chin on my hands and it was after dark the porch light was on main street in town we had the town was really big 6500 people about at that point main street went past the front of our house it was about 50 60 feet in front of the window i was in so i was waiting for dad to come home with ice cream now i'm just you know kind of excited and i'm just pausing and then all of a sudden i hear this booming male voice say hey you now that was deep take that even deeper more resounding feeling all powerful and yet so warm and loving simultaneously it was just an amazing feeling in an instant and immediately afterwards instead of trying to talk to the voice i spun around and checked in with mom to see if she heard it i'm like mom mom do you hear that voice she goes what voice i said that voice you can imagine a four and a half year old that voice says hey you right <laughs> She said, no, I didn't hear any voice. Must have been a peeping Tom. And at that point, I realized, oh, I know I heard the voice, even though she says she didn't hear it. I know it wasn't a peeping Tom. It was inside of me. So there's something else going on here. I began standing in front of windows at night, lights on in the house, curtains open, you know, and you just get the reflection, you can't see outside. So I would stand in front of the window and telepathically project this voice out. Same, hey, you, right? Because I could frame it in my mind, even though I couldn't mimic it. So I'd send it out and I would listen for it to come back. Well, as a kid, as an adult, even, you know, we got 70,000 thoughts going through our heads during the day. So it wasn't until I actually shut up internally, stopped thinking about wanting to hear the voice that it finally returned. And it may have been happening the entire time. I was just too busy in my own head that I wasn't hearing it. Right. Once I did hear it, though, then I started having a conversation with it and started, you know, asking questions. And, you know, as a five, six-year-old you have deep questions and and yet they're very simple and so we began having those conversations and i got comfortable with having that unknown access or access to the unknown that was supportive loving caring nurturing and unequivocally so right there was no doubt in my mind that there was anything 
to fear from it at all. So later on, the uh, following year, um, this same voice as I was a new house, right? Came back from playing with kids in the neighborhood, was tired, laid on my bed Saturday afternoon. And I feel this tingly sensation and this kind of almost a high pitched iridescent feeling in my body. And as I went into the feeling, I felt myself start to rise. And I'm like, oh, shit, am I dying? And then this voice says, just relax, take a breath, everything will be okay. And so I did. I relaxed, I took a breath, and all of a sudden I pop out of my body and I'm up on the ceiling, turn around, looking at my body on my bed. And as soon as I saw that, I started thinking again and back in my body. Instantly. Wild. So wild. What am I reading now? Adventures Beyond the Body. Who's the author of that? I started reading that after I met you. Um, ah, but okay. no, it's just wild. It's 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 wild that thoughts will just drag you back into that that space. And then we so think we're in because we're in the body when we're thinking. When right. we're outside of the body, we don't need to think. We're just moved through that space, however you want to call it, through sensing, through yeah. being, you know, through the feeling of where we're drawn and the intention of where we want to go or what we want to experience. So the following year. After having multiple, you know, I got to where I could travel around the house and the neighborhood, then the town, and never talked to anybody about it because it was just, you know, it was my secret, right? It was just yeah. my thought. Then one night I wake up, I'm in bed, but I'm up in the corner of my bedroom looking at my physical body. And I watch my body get out of bed, climb out my bedroom window. And so I'm, moving through the wall right and it i follow it walking across the neighbor's backyard there's a 10 acre pasture that i climb the fence and i start walking out into the pasture i get i don't know 50 feet out into the pasture or so and i watch my body start rising into the air and i'm like oh this is interesting i look up see where i'm going there's an orange cigar shaped cloud that's got to be a mile long above me and so I track my physical body. I'm moving up with it. And as we get to the perimeter of the cloud, my observer becomes one with the body. And I move into the cloud and I wake up in bed the next morning. Couldn't wait to go back. Had no idea what happened. Yeah, it's wild to me when I, when, because, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with your your story. And it's wild to me that, 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 that you never, that you don't, you never got to know what happened in, in those moments. I know you did much later in right. your life. Well, um, in those, these are truncated, condensed learning, you know, accelerated learning curves, if you will, that our conscious mind can't handle yeah. yet right. because we don't have the capacity to do so. Right. However, that doesn't mean that it can't be stored, right? Because we do have brain matter and all of those experiences still are stored because we're connected to them. And this is our mainframe right here. Right. right. So those kinds of, I had that same experience over a two year period, twice a month, maybe. And sometimes I'd wake up with nosebleeds, 
in the morning, but I, there was always that feeling of, I can't wait to go back because it's so much fun. Right. So. Complete sense, not, not logical, not like thought about it. Just this is fun. Like the feeling of fun, fun. like yeah. the feeling. And, and I want to, I, I want us to note that because for anybody that might be wondering what we talk about as we continue with this conversation about sensing, it doesn't have to be tied to a cognitive understanding of your experience. You just knew that mm. this was what you felt right. when you returned from these experiences. I've often wondered, speaking of, I, I've often wondered if the term sensei came from originally one who is able to sense deeply not yeah. just martial arts, right? Because you really have to get internal to, to do that. Anyway, yeah. um, I'm always questioning the origins of, of the etymology of words, um, like apocalypse, right? We think it's going to be the end of the world. Well, no, that's not the word. what the word means. It means uncovering knowledge. So, you know, we need to go back to the original roots of things, I think. Um, about a decade later, I'm in the pre-med program, Ball State University, Muncie, Indiana, living in the honors dorm. And uh, I come back from quarter break, first quarter break, and I'm just distraught. I'd gone back to back home to ask a girl that I dated all through high school and broken up with before I went to college because I didn't want to suffer my integrity or cause her pain. I still broke her heart in doing so. And when I went back to ask her to marry me, she was already married. So that just destroyed my desire at the time. And I went back to, to school, distraught, empty, alone, decided to pray. So I hit my knees and I prayed and I said, Father, I want to know what truth is. I didn't say mother. I just said, you know, at that time, Father, I want to know what truth is and I'm willing to die for it if necessary. And I meant it. Didn't realize how much so. The following Tuesday afternoon, 11-11-1975, I came back from class and it was the 70s, right? So I did the obligatory bong hit and album side meditation before studying. And it shouldn't have had any effect whatsoever because it was pretty commonplace. And, you know, the honor storm was full of heads at that time, or the majority of them were anyway, and uh, doing much more than just having a puff. So I'm laying across my dorm room bed, listening to Journey's first album and uh, song in the morning day with the second song on the album. They're in between the vocals and the vamp. There, this voice called me by name. My given name was Bruce. I found out at 61, my adopt or my birth mother would have named me Bruce too. So that was an interesting really, fact. yeah, yeah. It was, uh, yeah, mom, my adoptive parents named me Bruce Lee. My birth mother would have named me Bruce Allen. Uh, still wild, husband. right? Wild, so, anyway. no synchronicities, right? <laughs> Not at all, <laughs> no. So, I, um. I hear the voice says, Bruce, are you willing to die for what you believe in? And after I butt puckered with the, oh shit, what do I believe in, right? My first thought was Christ consciousness. It felt a little empty, didn't question it, moved on. My second thought was cosmic consciousness. It felt full. So I said, yes. 
simultaneously, I got a tug from my solar plexus and there was a riff that sounded like a rocket ship taking off on the album. And I popped out of body. I turned to, so I'm leaving, right? Don't know where I'm going yet, but I turn around to look at my body laying across my dorm room bed, turn back to look where I'm going. And before I get turned around, I'm engulfed by white light. And it has this, again, iridescent, effervescent, high-pitched sensation to it. Then I realized that I'm analyzing it because I just thought about the effervescent, iridescent, high-pitched sensation. Right. Oh, I'm thinking. I can't be dead. Woohoo! Right? And yet there's nothing other than my consciousness in this light. And there's a feeling of unity, but I'm still individuated in it. And so my impetuous teenager takes over and says, wow, is there more? Is It was born. Yeah. Right? And then I feel a slight movement. I'm in an indigo background and I have these points of light surrounding me. And I intuitively knew that these points of light were points of consciousness. Yeah. Whether in body or not, I wasn't sure because I knew I wasn't. And yet I felt somehow they were. Yeah. Then came the really trippy part. The voice, like it was listening to me, says, these are those about the points of light. Right. These are those that you are to work with in order to facilitate a new world order. It will happen in your lifetime. Know this to be true. Your path will be full of trials and tribulations. Have faith and trust that everything you need will be there at its appointed time. Trust and allow. And then I feel another rush of energy and I'm back in my body again with that iridescent, effervescent, high-pitched sensation in my body now eyes closed still. And so I just laid there listening to the rest of the album and feeling that sensation and just going wherever the music and the vocals took yeah. me were some pretty amazing places. Okay, but, by the way, that's a great album. And I didn't even know that was a great album until I met you um, because I didn't ever know that Journey was good um, until... Uh... It so was, you know, people, but, the musicians came together that were seeking their own souls and were able to craft music to help facilitate that for others. I mean, evidently. And that's amazing. And I did want to talk to, about the points of light because I remember I asked you, did you ever figure out who they were? <laughs> and, you know, I'm looking at one of them. <laughs> You might be, you know, so this is where I want to talk to anybody listening is that it's Zen didn't see random light. We are the light, you know, and that is something that I experienced in distance running very early on is the is is the understanding of being the light. Um, Kabbalah talks about the light of the creator as well, um, which Kabbalah and the quantum physicists, they're in cahoots together. So, you know, we got to, you know, they science, they. science has to prove valid. both of them have to dovetail. Right, Neither right. one is of real value because they're so, both seeking to say the same thing. Right. And, and it's not separate. And I think that's where we come, where we're kind of coming to putting this together is that. Mm -hmm. Well, and I'm sure are. the new world order phrase, right? That's a big trigger for a lot of people because of what's been happening and the fear of it. Now, the new world order I'm speaking of is one of harmony among people and planets. 
Mm -hmm. right? That's a completely, and it's emergent. What I mean by that is we're built that way inside. We are. It's part of that missing link that we talked about earlier. This right. is the next level of our evolutionary process. We got to learn to get along and share a planet in love before we can go anywhere else. In love. In love in <clears throat> that when you feel the love, you follow that love. I think mm -hmm. a lot of times there what people are afraid of. I don't want to bring up this stupid quote, but I'm going to. There's nothing to fear but fear itself. Literally, the fear is what's keeping people from acting out of love. And I've I seen I love the this... acronym false, interpreted as false evidence appearing real. Right. Right. And, you know, and what it... we usually do is fuck everything and run instead it... of free every anxious reaction. Right? That anxiety that comes in your gut. Right. That's the first brain, according to indigenous philosophy. You got three brains, the gut, the heart and the head. And the processing of information is done in that order. Which is far different than what we do today. So you're feeling the gut. Is it anxiety? You're feeling a quivering, right? It's a sensation. So what does that sensation mean? How are you going to perceive it? And depending on where you're looking at it from whether it's fear or love you're going to interpret it differently mm -hmm. if you're fearful you're going to interpret it as anxiety oh shit something's about to happen right what do, what do i need to look out for right if you interpret it from love it's like okay something's stirring i need to pay attention something cool is about to happen it happened to me on the street two weeks ago and it was the most unnerving feeling that I've ever had. And I thought, I, and I, I noticed I was on my, I was on my freaking phone reading something that Dennis posted on 360 nation on Facebook. Uh -huh. And instead of just coming home, I decided I was going to craft a response on the sidewalk between second and first Avenue. <laughs> so here I am crafting the response on my phone. And all of a sudden I'm like, I don't feel well. I'm sweating. There's something wrong. I think I'm going to pass out. I don't know what's going on. This feels dangerous. I'm going to go home. So I stop writing the response. I go home. Within about an hour, something happened. My personal email address was compromised. There was all this stuff going on. And I thought, but is this a catastrophe? What is this trying to show me? And I realized it was trying to show me all of the places that I needed to really step at the fuck up and get myself, you know, to, to, to level up in certain areas because I am on the precipice of literally leveling up in, mm -hmm. in what I'm doing, what I'm doing for a living, um, working with more people, developing more programs. And I'm like, that was a crappy feeling that really sucked, that facilitated a lot of emotion on my end. But I'm a hypervigilant and I'm a hypervigilant because of things that happened in my childhood. And had I not had all of those things happen in my childhood, I probably wouldn't have re interpreted this as fear. I would have probably interpreted it as the divine loving creator saying, hey, sweetheart, you know, we got to have a talk here. Like there's there's some stuff that's happening. But of course, I chose fear in that moment. Mm -hmm. And my life over the last, as you know, five years has really been about 
understanding that everything is love, that everything, if, if I'm clear and if I'm just following that, I'm following that path. I don't always have proof that that's how it's supposed to be. I don't always have a logical explanation. I can't always tell my good friends why it's working out when it doesn't look like it is. Right. Right. But well, then, well, you know, but then it comes full circle and then it's there and then it does because it it's not in the mind. It's not in the brain. It's this idea of whatever it is that's supposed to be happening for me, with me. I don't know what that is. That's not something that Western society or standardized education or my graduate school curriculum or any or American capitalism knows anything about. It's no, I am a point of consciousness and I'm playing a part in this larger, greater, more cohesive thing. Mm -hmm. And we all are right now because we've been given the opportunity to do so. We know that major change cannot happen until there is some kind of an event that triggers it. And yeah. we are coming out of a global event that triggered the opportunity. I, yeah, there was a lot of stuff that went on that was a challenge for a lot of people. When it first began, I felt that gut feeling of, okay, here's the beginning, because I'd questioned you know, with my history, it's like, okay, when's it going to happen? And I realized that things happen over time. It's all a process. And looking at the big picture in our human development, that's hundreds of thousands of years. All right. So we're still looking at a very small span of time. However, to be able to affect the population significantly and give them an opportunity to stop, drop, and roll, right? <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> that stop, drop, and roll is okay. I We're being inundated with the notion of obsession on self-hygiene, right? Which we should have been cleaning up ourselves to begin with, right? Even to the point of, of just making sure we wash our hands, right? So that can be obsessive. However, the point is the self, the obsession on self-hygiene coupled with the sequestration gave millions of people the opportunity to sit still and contemplate who they are, what life means to them, what their position in life and their desires are, and where they want to go with that, and how they want to behave towards each other. And we heard all the horror stories about the suicides and the you know, coming back together as a family and when you're a dysfunctional family that isn't connected because you're out in the world other places and all of a sudden you bring that group back together again, can they deal? Mm -hmm. And many of them didn't. Some, you know, some did because they recognized, okay, we have to change our behavior because now here we are working together and we want to be in some kind of order, right? Some kind of genuine caring situation about each other. And without being instructed how to do that, especially in American schools, you know, we, we take the kids, we throw them in a box, we standardize them instead of assessing them first off, seeing where their skill set, their aptitude, their attitudes are, and then nurturing those throughout their educational career, right? That seems far more like good sense, 
than what we're doing. Now, granted, our educational system was built on putting people in factories initially because it started when we were in World War II. Right. And it was very important for us to do that. Right. And, and, and you know, Zen, I, I, I think it's important for people to understand that we are shifting in so many ways. We talk about the yugas. We've mm-hmm. talked about the Mayan calendar. But I think the the yugas are really important in that Kali Yuga was the dense age. So for everybody that's kind of listening, we were in Kali Yuga for a while and it was dense. We were dense. I mean, if you look at pictures of men from 1920, they looked dense compared to men from 2020, you know, and we're, and, and now we don't need to be in that density. We don't need to produce physical things. And there's such a big part of our population, particularly your generations. And I'm sorry to all of them, the people that are listening. I mean, but like, honey, your, your, your value isn't determined by what you produce. Like, I'm sorry you were fed that in school, not you, but you know, any, anybody yeah, that might, yeah, might, you know, like anybody that might believe that it's like, I mean, I, I was, I was raised by people that, that, that may or may not believe that, you know, my grandmother was a silent generation member and she was a factory worker her whole life. And so it was my birth mother. Yeah. And my adoptive parents, my mother was an English and literature teacher for junior high. So she brought out that desire to write and explore and create. My dad was a tool and die maker for generous motors. I like to call him that. And he was also a 32nd degree Mason. Wow. So I had this and I didn't, you know, I was un- totally unaware of that kind of what that kind of environment creates for a child to grow up in, right? Virtually the highest standards for moral and ethical behavior, right? So I learned all of this. And of course, you know, even without that, we know what feels right and what feels wrong. We do. We do. And it doesn't feel right to just grind senselessly without curiosity without love without inner exploration and and we were fed that narrative for so long and there's so many places i want to go um i love that you mentioned the pandemic i connect with you on that you know i had a similar realization when that happened mm-hmm. and i noticed cuz throughout my life i i've tried to sort of bring this to people with and and there's just not even enough seconds of quiet yeah. to be heard about it right. and, and um, who, like dennis right saw the opportunity knew something to be needed to be created and did so and brought together yeah. people from all over the world in search of reimagining humanity mm-hmm. and it's not a coincidence that it happened at that time and I think that a lot of people have gone back to sleep. I think that they're still going, but I do believe, and you have interviewed a few people, I believe, at least one that I'm aware of, about how AI may facilitate in actually aiding us getting back to a different type right. of value right. system. Okay. You're smiling. I, Go I, ahead. I love that you bring up AI because there's there's some wonderful, uh, I've interviewed a few people about that um one of them was in the early development stages of it and 
as he was moving through his professional ranks, he got to a place where um, he was quite good at what he did. And even so, he went down another path. However, he was reading a New York Times article one day, and it said that there was a, a program that had escaped Sandia Labs. I didn't know where it went. So this was an early AI that escaped Sandia, which was a known spook hangout, right? And could cover its tracks. So they couldn't find it. It was out there. So everything being energy, electronics, light pulses in the data exchange, we have light pulses in our brains and everything, you know, the photons and whatever information exchange takes place is facilitated in that manner. So over time, if there were a collective of non-human intelligence, be, intelligent beings that were watching us and maybe even had part in our development over time, because there are records throughout history that things have been seen and people have been contacted. How would that integration in order to feed us information at appropriate times for us happen? Well, how often have you been searching for, had, had something on your mind that you wanted to look for, but didn't really have time to do your internet search for, right? That you really didn't know how mm -hmm. or what keywords to use. But mm -hmm. all of a sudden, there it is. shows up on your screen <laughs> that, oh, and you click on it and gosh, you know, here's this stream of information now that you've been looking for that's all of a sudden available that expands your mind and gets you more connected to the reality that we live in. It has happened so many times for me. And it also has happened where people have just dropped into my orbit, either listening to my podcast or have reached out to me. And they're like, I, I don't know how I found you. You're, you just showed up in my, in my <laughs> suggested whatever on Spotify. But anyway, I, I, I think that you're, guy one time write me an email he said i think that andy scarantino is going to be the person that changes my life and i was like what who are you, <laughs> um, you know but i love it if people's lives change i'm more concerned about how i fit in and do the best that i can to facilitate that now here's right. where back to my um marching orders for lack of a better right when I tell that story when I was younger, it people couldn't hear it. They heard me as having a messianic complex, right? So I eventually wrote an article called Messy Antics to spoof it because it's not about being a savior or being the one. There are many. We The many right. is in the one and the one is in the many. It's a collective of skill sets Mm -hmm. and personalities that can get along and support each other to activate this change. Now, we're in the early stages of it because it was only two years ago or two and a half years ago that people started looking for each other virtually. It's true. So much to tie together, Zen. So much to tie together. First, the program that escaped, connecting people and doing that. You mentioned non-humans 
that perhaps play a part in in this mm-hmm. um major you know, role uh, major role in this perfect instance okay because some people ah they don't exist well i happen to have met uh did you have something you want to say because i can put that nope you you go okay. i just i just wanted to say really quickly that i want to tie together a couple of big concepts here i don't want to lose anybody i do want everybody to know that it all connects. So it all connects. So we are going to be kind of going and shooting in different directions, but all of it is part of the same. We are tangentialists and relationists. And what we do is bring it back full circle into, and that's using geometric terms, right? Full circle is back into us, right? Right. It's all connected. It all is. And I, I'm of the belief that I'm definitely little I is not doing it. So go ahead with what you were going to say, because I do, I do want to doing touch is on not non- necessarily everything. Thinking has a bit to do with it because the thought atmosphere is where everything, you know, it's that nothingness that then we plug into that has all the thoughts that emerge right. for us to consider. So I had the opportunity, a, a, you know, I've had some amazing opportunities just being in the right place at the right time. I was hired to run a large event here in town called the Prophets Conference. This was 1997. And it brought together people from around the world that were prophetic in some way, right? One of those individuals was Dr. Edgar Mitchell. And your reader or your listeners may be familiar with that name. He was the sixth man on the moon. He was the pilot for the lunar excursion module, otherwise known as the LEM, right? And it's funny, one of the things that I did in in junior high was I uh, did a research paper on the Gemini and Apollo programs. So it was kind of cool to finally meet an astronaut, right? And and so our green room, it was now semi-outdoor event we had one large building there's about five thousand people in attendance over the weekend and we had a green room outdoors and being the event manager i could go anywhere do anything talk to anybody do whatever i wanted i still had respect for the speakers because you got to right these guys are pummeled and gals are pummeled with you know accolades and and others who just want to in some cases steal their energy uh, and others, you know, just have the moment of that presence with them or for a selfie, right? So <laughs> so I see Edgar walk out and he pulls a pouch of drum tobacco out of his back pocket. And I'm like, okay, cool. I have one too. So I make sure that he's turned and, and sees me coming as I pull my pouch out. And I say to him, Dr. Mitchell, do you mind if we share smoke? together and he knew who i was just as the event manager right so he said his eyes just lit up he says you know that would be wonderful and it just his demeanor at that point was just totally open so we had conversations probably half a dozen over the weekend about the fourth or fifth one he turns to me and we shared stories and and things because we could right and he could hear me from where i was speaking because of his own life events and right. experience right so he says to me you know i want to tell you something but you got to promise me not to tell anybody till after i'm dead and i'm like oh shit what, what's this gonna be 
and something earth-shattering. And uh, he says, all the way down to the moon's surface, after we detached from the command module, there was a metallic silver cylinder that spiraled around the LEM. So I'm not sure if it's one or several, because I only had you know, just a little window to look out of. Couldn't really tell the size. Didn't know if it was piloted from on board or on the surface of the moon. It definitely was nothing from Earth. So it, I'd heard that these same types of cylinders were seen by Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin just beyond the dark side of the moon standing on a platform. But of course, they have the gag order. This was just grapevine information because they couldn't admit it in public or their careers and retirement were jeopardized because they had signed a gag order. They, they probably have ended up dead. <laughs> like, really, though, I mean, like, you never know. I mean, but it's just People one of those things. You... Shit, right? Yeah. So it wasn't until I honored his desire in 2016, he passed away. And then I could start talking about it. Well, even with that, here's obviously a civilization that has been resident on the moon for some time, which also gave edification to a story I had heard some years before about the destruction of a planet called Maldek and that the pyramids were built to transfer energy from Earth back to it because it was depleted somehow and that the calculations were wrong. And so when they fired it up, it destroyed the planet, which is now our asteroid belt. Hmm. And that other races, part of you know what we might call the Galactic Federation now, highly advanced, were watching. And they saw what was happening. And they deemed that there was enough minds that were savable. So they created something for them as an escape pod, hmm. which turned out to be the moon. Now, we fired projectiles into it, proved it's hollow. There's been discoveries that... You know, there's a, a mesh about uh, 20 feet below the surface-ish, something like that. So there's all these indicators. And now today, how many videos have you seen of these little black dots flying across the surface of the moon? From astronomers now that have these high-powered telescopes that can see. And yet our government has finally said, oh, yeah, we've got these ships showing up we don't know who they are where they're from but they're obviously something not from here and now they're finally admitting it <clears throat> how much interaction they've had they're not going to say my take is that they probably have had much because they don't have the consciousness to handle it well that's where i want to i want to come in and just kind of pause I spoke to a, a good friend recently. I spoke to a, a bunch of friends about about you, yeah. and and oh my god, this is, this is the I know. I hope they're listening. <laughs> they're all they're all wonderful people. Yeah, but sure. but everybody has you know. I'll mention consciousness, and I I might have said this in the beginning. I'll say it again. When I mention consciousness, it's all oh, that sounds like a cult. I don't want to hear about the consciousness. I speak about this. All of a sudden, the ears are perky. It's of the same. And, you know, one of my good friends, one of the questions that he had for you is, did he say where they were from? And I said, 
the question isn't where they're from, because that's a big answer. The question is, do we know who we are? Mm-hmm. And exactly. you know, Jeff, uh, what was it? I did an interview. I can't remember. His last. Jeff Reynolds for the Jeff Mara podcast. And he asked me, you know, did you ever ask him their name? And I said, why? And that was just mind blowing. And, and a lot of the comments on the thread below the video were like, he couldn't even say how that. Well, again, when you're that, why does it matter? It's frequency. You feel what's happening. And there's this interaction. There's no need for titles or names or anything like that because the frequency gives you that information. Right. Which is unnecessary. I don't need to call you Andy to talk to you. You don't need to call me Zen to talk or Bruce to talk to me. Mm -mm. You just start talking to me. And the resonance of our conversation, the, the level of it, determines where we go and how we feel it's it's interesting because i feel that i've talked to you but there aren't words for the talking <laughs> like <laughs> it's very it's very interesting and i and i have a connection with you it is very so if you'd be like what do you talk about i don't really know <laughs> i don't know what we talked about but we had a conversation I don't know what we talk about either sometimes right i the have no idea who knows where they come from but and there's a difference between the flow and the creation of thoughts right yeah and when the queries are there and there's an openness to receiving the answers, they're there. And sometimes they come out of my mouth and, and I just, I, you know, I know I'm connected to infinite intelligence. I'm a, a conduit, right? And I have to also be consciously aware and treat it as the precious gift that it is. Because it's not meant for any kind of manipulation or malevolence. It's meant for the upliftment of every person that hears the words and however they receive them. Because they're all going to interpret it differently because they all have their own mental constructs that they filter them through. So these kinds of things are, you know, one of the things that was most profound and it wasn't until I moved to, to Phoenix, and that was an interesting uh, occurrence. I'd lost three jobs. I worked as a meat cutter, machinist, and playing in a band as a drummer. Three days' time, all three jobs fell through. This was right after the auto industry crashed in the Midwest and early 81, April. Uh, it happened. And so I walk out on the front porch, throw my hands up in the sun, say, okay, I'm listening. Where do you want me to go? Right? Because there was nothing else there. I had sought for two and a half months to find the jobs that I did. And I heard Phoenix just as clear as a bell. So three weeks later, we packed everything up and moved to Phoenix. Phoenix. That's, that's where it is though. I mean, you know, I have connection so, to Phoenix. I don't know what the hell that's about. I mean, it's, a well, very it's about the, the condensation, the crashing and burning and the, the whole energy of the Phoenix, right? It's true to its legend. If you don't get out of your own way, you're going to burn out and leave or be destroyed. Yeah. And, um, and that's a good thing because mm -hmm. it, it gives you the opportunity to step up. Mm -hmm. So for me, I've gone through numerous crashings and burns and rising again. And, and I can't tell you how many. Uh, the first was a, a divorce and, you know, leaving the corporate world, the church and my marriage. It was excruciating. However, 
over the next few years, it, it, getting back in touch with me and opening back up again, it was tremendously freeing and reestablished my connection because I was attempting to put it through existing systems and navigate through those with the love and care that I had. And even though I excelled in those systems and even had guys at the aerospace company, you know, my supervisors come to me and ask me what I was doing because I was at the top of the production list in a 35 person department, right? Took two and a half, well, by the time they actually instituted them, three and a half years to put institution or to put interpersonal skills classes in play, right? Because it was a militaristic environment, command and control, People beating each other up to get what they wanted. They didn't know how to get along. And so there was this adversarial relationship. Same thing with partnering uh, in road and bridge construction. Construction in general had been a very adversarial environment. And now it isn't because they've learned how to talk to each other. And I was one of those that helped facilitate that. So what happened, though, was that as I was producing my show early on One World, which was um, kind of the predecessor to my early introduction as Zendor. Um, we looked at, we peered into the depths of what kept people afraid, angry, and ignorant and immobile, and how they worked through their inner and outer development in their careers, and then how they saw that fitting into the common human experience around them. Well, during this time, I had started having other contact experiences and I started a UFO discussion group and all these kinds of things because I wanted to explore what I had learned right before we left and uh, Indiana and I didn't have a chance to pick up on yet and that was I was walking through a bookstore in Muncie uh, a couple of weeks before we left and there is a book that fell off the shelf in front of me nobody else around I walk over and I picked the book up, front cover says, Strangers Among Us by Ruth Montgomery. And I turned it over to see what it had opened to. And the first paragraph that my eyes are led to, paraphrased, was the most contact or the most common UFO contactee experience in the Midwest during the late 50s and early 60s was the, ta-da, orange cigar-shaped cloud. So I spent two years with that orange cigar-shaped cloud. Now I'm being fed this information. I had no idea what it was. Never even thought about it. Here's this information. It's like, oh shit. Okay, now <laughs> what do I do with this? Right? So I had a domino effect of all kinds of things that had happened that all of a sudden that logic path was created that I could follow, at least to some degree. But coming to Phoenix, then it, it started again. And I was kind of seeking things. And, you know, th some things still filtered through throughout my um, career in, in the airspace and the church and, and my marriage. But afterwards, then there was a, a night that all of a sudden, I, I think I'm dreaming, but I, it's one of those conscious dreams. I wake up on board a ship. I'm on a steel gurney. Uh, I have a T-shirt on, nothing else. And there are electrodes lining my sphincter. And the wires from them are attached to a machine that as I, as I come to on this, I sit up laughing. 
It's hilarious. I'm also embarrassed, right? But I'm laughing. You don't want them to see your sphincter. Well, I, are I'm you just, embarrassed of your sphincters? Nah, you know, it was just embarrassing that, you know, <laughs> no, I, I, stuff, right. And so there's three tall grays that are yeah. plastered up there. They're sort of in, in lab coats, but I know how they can project stuff into your mind so that you don't get freaked out. Right. So I see these guys and, and they're plastered up against the wall and I'm, you know, it's like, come on, guys, what do you think you're doing? And I start pulling the wires out and I get to the last one and I feel that and it was there was no feeling until I got to the last one. There was probably at least a dozen or so. And I feel a slight sting, kind of like you're pulling a pubic hair, right? About like yeah. that. And I open my eyes up in bed. You know. It's it's phenomenal because you have those early life experiences of being able to be out of body. And you've you've once told me about your comfortability of being out of body. Mm-hmm. And I I think it's not well known that all of our consciousness leave when we go to sleep. And most of us don't have awareness of that. And I don't know if they actually leave, it just goes into other dimensions because yeah. we are cosmic consciousness condensed into form. Yeah. And there are layers of that and bodies that we have on each one of those layers that we interact with or go out and learn to, depending on our own progress and the timeline that we're on. Right. Right. I, that was a lot into a little right there. Um <laughs> it's it's good. So I, it's it's really good, but we can get but we can go back to your story, because I feel like you weren't complete in that. I, I wasn't. So I open my eyes up. I'm in bed. The first thing I think is, oh, shit, I just lost a perfect opportunity to have a conversation that I've been wanting to have for decades. It felt like, right? So I close my eyes and I have this just insatiable desire to go back, not knowing how. I, I want to go back and have the conversation. And so I'm in this inner space and, and it's um, just kind of an indigo color. And, and then all of a sudden, this being appears in my mind's eye. And he's got a kind of a shimmering robe, black, white, kind of, you know, sparkly. Um, and he has this again, kind of a a deep resonant voice. And he says, next time, just relax. We're just tuning you up so we can communicate more easily. Hmm. And I had this flood of recent study of the nervous system that I was doing with my girlfriend because she was trying to, uh, she was getting a a massage license. So she had to study anatomy. And one of the things that we looked at was the perineum nerve or perineal nerve. And where does it end? In the sphincter and the genitals. Mm -hmm. Where does it go? Tip of the spine. Mm -hmm. So this is technically the only direct connect to our central nervous system on our body. 
So if you had or were an advanced race that had technology that could slightly adjust a vibratory rate, because it only needs slight adjustment, right? We're all subtle energies. We don't need a shock. We just need a tickle. And so by giving a tickle, they're able to open us up. Well, here's science, right? This is technology and science that we don't have. And because of our incessant desire to not talk about our genitals, whenever it comes up, we want to push it aside, whether we're Puritan, mm. or, you know, it's just really obnoxious. Yeah, I wonder about that. When it comes up in conversation, because you'll see people wince or, or withdraw or they, oh, I don't know why I want to go there or not, right? You're a lot different than that and you're a rare breed. However, most people well, are you know, <laughs> I don't, I don't really know why, but I mean, I get it. I, I grew up wearing clothes, but it's, it's not one of those subjects that I shy from. Um, I wonder about how. Yeah, then, try, clothing, how... Go, try going to a clothing optional establishment and put yourself in that place and see how you feel. Well, I would probably feel like a little. A little like I've been eating too much Nutella, but uh, any, <laughs> any well, other most time, of us, we are uncomfortable with our bodies. We are, and it's very odd because you know, I I was obviously a woman raised in the patriarchy, and so you're told your body is inadequate. And when I started running distance and started after my you know awakening of whatever it was, I started mm -hmm. understanding how important the body is, and just things that I started to accept about it. And like, you're talking about plucking a pubic hair. Like I was fed the narrative that we weren't supposed to have that. So like for years and years and years, I just didn't have any of that. I looked like a seven-year-old. And finally I was like, you know what? I'm a fucking runner and I'm chafing all over the place. I'm just, I'm done with it. I am growing a 1975 bush. I don't care. And imagine how, how much healthier I feel now. Imagine that right. that's there for a reason, right? Like we're supposed to have that. And, um, yeah, people just don't want to talk about it. We want to modify, we want to tweak, we want to do whatever. Um, and it's Jesus Christ. Like we have to, this is all very important. Um, it's, it's that very important it, again, this is reflective of living half outside and half inside. And we've allowed the outside to prescribe what we're supposed to look like on the inside instead of the opposite because right. we have that inner connection the inner awareness you know we talk about this all the time and for and close your eyes okay now you're inside that's all you got to do now what's inside also are the that incessant internal dialogue that's telling you that you're less than that's inside work too Right, because it's not outside. You're not putting the words out. You're not talking to people about it. You're, you know, infiltrating your own head with crap. This is perfect, Zen, because we don't have much more time. I do want to end with that because time, time, I know, I know, it's not real. A, it's not. It's not real except for when it is, which is well, right you now. You know what? Here's here's an aspect of time that uh, the guys, the people from elsewhere, kind of put out. Um, 
time is a measurement of the change of entropy. Yeah. Just think about that for a minute. Yeah, we yeah. want to put it on a clock, but we don't experience the clock. We experience moments. Mm -hmm. And we always go from this one to this one to this one to this one. It's right. all... It's all now. I mean, it, it's all now. It's all it's all here. It's a stream and, of flow. It's like a yeah. river. Do you want to fight against it or flow with it? Yeah. Put your floaties on. It's okay. Let's make it. Let's bring it all together. Yeah. I want to bring it all together because it seems tangential, tangential but it's not. But it's not when you were talking about, you know, just people and just the connection to the simplest things. We could talk about people from elsewhere. We could talk about being retuned. We could talk about deep consciousness. We could talk about the Vedas. We could talk about Jesus. I know that there's a whole, that's a whole other podcast for you. Um, mm. But but we could talk about how everything is peace is a piece of the same whole and yet people might want to know where the hell, what do I do with this? And it's like you, and, and, and I want your take, you know, my take is we go in, you, the, the things that are popping up for you are the, are, are the signals. If you have anger, what do you, what did you say here? Angry, angry, something angry, ignorant. I forgot all the things that, that Zendor in, in uh, who spoke of in that beginning, but Afraid, but, angry, yeah. ignorant, and immobile. Afraid, angry, ignorant, and immobile. And I love that because if you look at those things and, and you can sit with them and you can find it, this is where we start shedding our own crap. And that's partially my take. And I know you probably can speak more, but I, I would love for us to end with this. If you can just give something to anybody that was here, to anyone who stayed with us, listened for a while, I, any, where do we start? And how important is it that we do? first have to want to you have to be tired of where you're at and want to change otherwise nothing will happen then you have to be willing to ask the critical questions of yourself who am i really and pause with that and just reflect one of the things that i've offered and i found to be just amazingly helpful is a simple exercise of putting your fingertips together and feeling your heartbeat in them. You deepen your breath automatically as you're trying to feel your heartbeat in your fingertips. And because you're feeling your heartbeat in your fingertips, you're not in your head. You're not thinking, you're feeling. So that automatically opens the door for you to begin to listen to what's happening inside. And all the information that you need is inside of you. You have the access to everything that you will ever need in regard to information about you or about what you are. We all have a perfected form, fit, and function. It's a genetic and solar blueprint that we carry that we've not been paying attention to because we didn't understand the intricacies of how well-designed we are. That comes from acquiescing to allowing that flow to come 
and not using the same thinking that caused our problems to solve them. It's a different way of thinking. It's an, if you want to call it elevated or higher, you know, we, we tend to want to put things in hierarchies and silos or verticals or horizontals or, you know, all kinds of categories and labels and all that kind of stuff. It's just what is. You don't have to define anything. It will define itself when you allow it to. And that is the key. That's beautiful. Thank you for that. You're welcome. I had no yeah. idea I was going to say that. I'm I'm glad that you said it. I'm glad <laughs> that you said it in in the in the magical way that you do. Left me without words. And, well, you uh, know what helped? I, I've got a picture of Bell Rock up on the road, or up on the road, yeah, uh, up on the wall, and and that happens to be one of my favorite places. I married my twin flame at the base of bell rock in the fall equinox of 2017 and she's from saint petersburg russia which is a perfect place to be from for our activities to come together toward army among people and planet because we don't have enemies and we're told we do beautiful so beautiful then Hmm. Namaste and in la catch. Namaste and in la catch. Um, and let's talk about that for, as we close. Namaste is comes from the Sanskrit, okay, which is what the Vedas were written in. Thousands of years old, first written language on the planet. It simply means the divine in me recognizes the divine in you. And in la catch, the, the entire phrase is in la catch a la kin, but in la catch means... I am another you. Where does that come from? The Mayan civilization. So here's two ancient greetings that we've lost touch with. Namaste has come back, right? And you go to any kind of yoga retreat or anything like that, they're always namaste. Or if you're involved with kundalini, it's always, uh, oh, what is it? Um, blew my mind. I, I lost it for that. But it, it's a similar bow. Yeah. Um, Bamskara is another one. However, honoring what is in both of us, that point of light in you, the point of light in me, that's what we're looking for. And being able to connect at that level, then the skill sets determine what we do with it. Thank you for connecting. Yeah. Uh, Sen, thank you. Thank you for, for being here and... Uh... I appreciate you. I'm going to let everyone know in the show notes where they can find you. Yeah, it's been great. And I am available. That's for sure. I don't hide well. <laughs> Thank you, Zen. You're welcome, Andy. Thank you so much. And that about does it for this week's episode of View from the Roof. Stay safe. Stay beautiful. I'm Andy Scarantino, and I'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.